Hey folks, just before jumping into this episode with Barry Brenninger of RD1 Spirits, wanted to provide a, a little clarification in case anyone gets confused during the episode. So when Barry and I first recorded this episode, RD1 was really more known as William Tar or WM Tar, and that was the brand's main whiskey product. As of September 10th, 2022, so just a couple of days ago, RD1 Bourbon and RD1 Bourbon Finished with French Oak are now available and are the main products for the brand. The Tar line, you might still be able to find a couple of bottles, either at the brand's location or at nearby stores, but they really are sunsetting that. It was always meant as a limited edition, fantastic limited edition, but a limited edition nonetheless. So in case you're wondering why we spent some time on the brand that was going to be sunsetted, it's because it was great. It showed off the blending skill. But keep in mind that RD1 is officially now the brand's title, the name, Registered Distillery 1, and you'll be able to hear all about that uh, mainly in the second half of this episode. There might still be a couple of bottles left, like I said, of the tar, and trust me, they're amazing. Look at my reviews if you have any questions. But do visit the Brand Center at Lexington's Distillery District right off of Manchester to pick up all of your RD1 spirits, RD1 merch, to taste the products, everything like that. And, uh, you know, who knows? You might even meet Barry himself. All right, with that clarification in mind, here's Barry Brenniger of RD1 Spirits. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Barry Brinegar of both RD1 uh, Distillery, and you might know it better as William Tarr, but RD1 is the larger brand. So Barry, welcome on. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to sampling some uh, bourbon and um, and uh, talking about the brand. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a, a good time uh, and looking forward to it. Excellent. And yes, we should note that uh, Barry has provided five samples for me to try as we go along today. So, and uh, let's see. Well, we won't spoil anything at the moment, so we'll just jump right in. So <laughs> let's let's start where uh, where everything does with what's the origin story. Yeah, well, you know, um, funny enough, uh, here in Lexington, Kentucky, um, you know, we love bourbon. And, um, you know, my uh, my path has been a little circular in uh, in bourbon. Um, you know, for me, I, uh, I'm a native of Lexington, um, actually grew up, um, I, I was a nurse in the operating room, and I found that I enjoyed talking to people better. And, um, and so I, uh, uh, became a, a sales representative for Medtronic an implantable device company. And so it also pharmaceutical formulations, but then I slowly migrated over to digital marketing. I own a digital marketing company and, um, follow this group called the Lexington bourbon society. And, um, I was on the, the board uh, for a short um, tenure. And during that time, I, I just absolutely fell in love with the industry and uh, so it, it got to the point where I started meeting local uh, influencers and, and business owners and met enough people that we said, hey, we should we should revive a brand. And what better brand to revive than Lexington, Kentucky's first federal registered distillery uh, that was established in 1865. And it was actually a, a descendant of Henry Clay that was one of the founders of, of that company. And they called it the Ashland Distillery after the Ashland Estate. 
And uh, so our history um, is about 60 plus years um, from 1865 into and and including a few years into prohibition. And then we uh, revived the brand in January of 2020, right before COVID. And um, we uh, so we started our company and we bought a still, we sourced barrels. We um, we had a product on the market on store shelves in October of 2020. So I often um, tell people that the brand just has willed itself to be revived. Yeah. And that's, that's an impressive turnaround for, yeah. I mean, everything involved, but that's, that's a step above for sure. Uh, so as you noted, first federally registered distillery. So yeah, um, fans of Kentucky bourbon, well, any bourbon, but Kentucky bourbon especially are going to probably note. But they're not DSP one. That's you know who that is. Yeah. So yeah. Who's so who's RD? So what's the uh, the difference between RD and DSP? And, and that's really our story. You know, our story is as as you look and DSP distilled spirits plant was post prohibition. It was after we came out of prohibition uh, uh, in 1933 that the government started re-registering distilleries. And at that point, they registered them as distilled spirits plant, that DSP designation. But before that time, in um, 1862, as the government is undergoing a traumatic civil war, they are in need of, of significant revenue. And so they start registering distilleries to get tax revenues. And so the way that they did it is they divided up the region here into seven different districts. And each district had an RD1, registered distillery one, RD2, RD3, and so on down. But each different district had an RD1. So there were seven RD1s that started out the first federal registered distilleries. And it just so happens that in in Lexington, Kentucky, RD1 was the Ashland Distillery. So that was their designation. That's the way that they received uh, tax revenues. And up to 30% of all the federal government's revenue came from distilleries. It's always been, even though we've had, of course, whiskey rebellion and, you know, uh, arguments against whiskey taxes and all of that, people continue to make it and people continue to buy and drink it. So, you know, I, at this point, I think people are kind of used to it, but it might have been a shock to the system back then for sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, our, there hadn't been a yeah. federal tax between what, 1801 or something and, and that time. So 60 years plus yeah. without a federal tax on, on spirits. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And then we went through a traumatic 13 years without a tax because we didn't make it, you know, it was illegal to manufacture alcohol during prohibition. It wasn't illegal to drink it and consume it, but it was illegal to buy it uh, outside of a prescription. And it was illegal to make um, homebrew and, and any kind of distilled spirits during prohibition. So so coming out of prohibition, this question just came to me. Uh, of course, there are you know new distilleries popping up after 1933 and after prohibition ends, and but there are the the six that kind of were allowed to keep selling during it through those uh, exclusions. Uh, when I'm kind of surprised when the government decided to go with DSPs as opposed to already that 
the ones already kind of already in production, already working, didn't get the the one, the two, the three, et cetera. Um, do you know why that was that they just took longer to, to register? Well, I think that you see a lot of a, a lot of bankrupt companies, a lot of bankrupt distilleries. You know, so they when during prohibition, uh, you you could put it in a bottle, but you couldn't manufacture it. You know, so there was a distiller's holiday in the late 1920s that allowed uh, the production of barrels for a short amount of time. But you know, a lot of those companies just they they couldn't make it. They were dependent upon that revenue. And so as as we get through prohibition, it's the ones who either survive because they had a um, a, a, a permit during prohibition or it was the opportunist who bought those the the bones of the distilleries and started it anew it's it's interesting question i don't know why that just came to me and i hadn't thought of it before but uh it's worth asking all right shall we uh before we go forward should we go into the first sample here yeah, I think we should. Um, so what you're going to sample here, the, the first three samples are, are a blend, um, and it's a blend of a seven-year Kentucky straight bourbon. And um, we've got these at different proofs. So the uh, um, and I can I can walk through the mash bill, right? I can I can we don't need to blind yeah. them, right? So the uh, the mash bill, the bourbon mash bill is going to be um, 75% corn, 13% rye and 12% malted barley. And then the, um, the, the, the rye mash bill is going to be 37% corn, 51% rye and 12% malted barley. So, um, as we're sampling the first sample here, it's at 96.4 proof. So it's the same blend. It's the same percentage. The only difference is proof. And, you know, you're, you're a bourbon guy. You understand the importance of what proof does to the, um, to, to the, to the various grains as it's, uh, has different proof. So, you know, as, as I knows this, uh, I, I get, I get some very sweet notes, um, uh, but I do get some character in it. it you know, 96.4 proof. Um, I am I'm getting a little bit more of the of, of the of the rye of, of the bold spiciness. Um, it's not overwhelming, uh, but it really does compete with the uh, the sweetness from the corn in the mash bill. So both mash bills have a high percentage of corn. And and the uh, the the rye is an eight year rye, so it's a very mature rye. It's going to drink much different than uh, you know your younger rye mash bills. Um, but it um, you know so for me on the nose, I, I definitely get some of the uh, the fruit citrus. I get some orange citrus. Um, I, I do get some boldness from the from the spice um, of the rye. So and um, fun there, like it yeah. does, not not a lot of proof, of course. We discussed beforehand how we're both proof hounds, but um, there's it. Does, it's not eighty proof either. There's some. There's enough heft there to be interesting yeah. to, especially to guys like us. If I'm going to put it bluntly, you know. Yeah, and you know what? What I really enjoy about this is it. It, it kind of cascades. You know, at the front of the uh, at the front of the palate, um, I, I get I get sweetness right off of the bat. Um, some people that rye is is dominant right at the first. Um, I get a little um, white pepper, some black pepper. It's definitely some spice heat on that mid palate, but it finishes. I get an orange citrus on the finish. 
Um, I can pick up some stone fruit, some dried cherry on the finish. And if you, um, you know, if you if you take a little dried cherries and eat it while you're sampling this, it really complements those uh, those fruit notes. Yeah, I mean, I agree with I agree with you 100 percent on on pretty much every note, actually. And I was trying to sip it before you said anything because, you know, power suggestion and all that. But right. Um, no, it, it's absolutely true. I was also picking up kind of a, especially on the nose, a uh, not Kentucky style cornbread, a northern sweetened cornbread on there. Yeah. And, and make sure reserve some of this um, as we um, as we go further along into the um, the next two tastings at the higher proof. Uh, when you go back and forth and and nose them together, you really do pick up that significant difference on the uh, on the proof. The, the rye just really opens up at this ninety six point four proof and um, very enjoyable. This one we um, uh, you can imagine a, a classic cocktail, a Manhattan old fashioned. This is going to play well with it um, with those rye notes, those spicy notes. Um, we do what's called a Lexington lemonade, and um, in our uh, in our brand destination, we have a slushy machine, and so we we make this Lexington lemonade, and and it's um it's lemonade concentrate, a high quality orange juice, um, water, and our whiskey um, a blend of the. Uh, the, um, the the bourbon and rye and it is it is a fan favorite you know people that come in it's very refreshing this time of year it's, it's very hot um here in in kentucky we're we're dealing with the humidity and um you know people come in just to get that slushy i believe it that sounds i mean i love a good slush right now it's hot as hell up in new york too we're in the middle of our mm -hmm. heat wave <clears throat> and um normally i'm a drink whiskey straight kind of guy I tell people to drink however they want, drink it how you like it, drink what you like. For me, I usually yeah. drink it straight. Yeah. But a slushy sounds damn good right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that sugar content, man, it really helps to absorb that alcohol really fast. Uh, so you, you got to be kind of careful with it. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, absolutely. It's very refreshing. We'll be at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. I don't know if you'll be there. I hope you will. And if so, definitely stop by our booth, but we'll have that Lexington lemonade. And it was a fan favorite last year. Uh, last year, they, um, the, uh, the festival attendees got tickets. And so they would, they would, you know, had so many tickets that they could get pours or cocktails from. And we had a bowl that was just filled with tickets. People were coming back. And, and that's really a sign of success when someone drinks your cocktail or your pour and they come back yeah. to say, you know what, I, I want another one. Absolutely. So I have to admit, I won't be at this year's festival. I will be at next year's though. Uh, Excellent. And, uh, I think, let me see before I make a mistake here. So uh, this, so yeah, actually this episode is going to come out. Uh, it's planned to come out on September 7th. So it'll be right before the festival, uh, but I'll actually be in Kentucky from the, from August 21st through the 27th between Louisville, Lexington, Bardstown, and two days in, in Nashville area, but in Tennessee, of course. But um, of course, if you'll be around, sneak by for some of that lemonade for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, make sure to uh, give me a heads up um, so that we can plan a time I can host you at our brand destination and um, maybe we'll take in a meal while you're while you're down here. Sounds great. I will connect with you offline about that. Awesome. All right. Awesome. So, um, actually, I should also mention. So, we've uh, been kind of going back and forth for for a little while now, and 
you probably hit the pavement easy top two or three people I've seen in terms of just pounding the pavement, getting that product out there, showing up at events, holding events. Um, and uh, I just wanted to mention it because it's really, it's impressive to watch and it shows a dedication to the product. Um, I, yeah. I really, the the only other person I could think of off the top of my head who's that just prolific about it is um, Alex Clark from Fort Hamilton Distilling. And mm-hmm. uh, he was actually in Kentucky last week. So perfect pairing. But wow. to see someone... To see someone like that who's just constantly, you know, every day I see on Instagram, you're at another event or, or, or you know, we just passed each other at Liquor Barn, I think, when I was down mm-hmm. there. We just missed you know, each other, I think. Just, yeah, I, I, what honestly confused me, and this is the God's honest truth, is that there's the, uh, you know, the, the end cap poster of, um, of you and, and the Williams Tower Reserve manchester reserve mm-hmm. yeah um and and in that end cap i think you were dressed in a suit or something and uh and it was just enough of a different look that i i swear to god i was there with my friends eric and i looked over and i was like i think that's i think that's barry but i'm not sure enough to be, to go over and you were talking to someone at the time so i was like i'm not sure enough to go over and be like are you, you know, like it's my first time yeah. in Kentucky. I gotta, I gotta tread a little carefully the first time. So. Oh, I, I wish you would have yeah. come up. Um, and, and that poster is actually Mark Stoops of the university of Kentucky football team. He's, he's the head coach. Yeah. He's actually one of my partners and he's a majority owner, you know, so mm-hmm. we, uh, in, in, especially in Lexington, we capitalize on, on Mark because of right. his popularity. He easily, he's a top 10 uh, college football coach in, in, in the whole country, you know, so mm-hmm. his stock is really rising. We're very proud of him and, and the things that he's done at UK, but you know, we're not a celebrity brand. We are, we are a legitimate um, brand that has been revived and we're going to come out with some interesting products. And, and um, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about what our strategy is here um, coming up over mm-hmm. the next year, the next five years, because we have a we have a liquid strategy that's taken us out. We're not looking to be acquired. We're we're looking to build a brand, and we will be national uh, nationally distributed brand in five years. I mean that's that's fantastic. That's a dream for yeah for any distillery, right? Opening up in the last decade to be nationally no. distributed within five years is yeah, it's a dream for many. Um, yeah, yeah. But, well, we're real fortunate with um, you know having Republic RNDC as our distributor. They're the number two distributor in the country, and it's the relationship that Mark Stoops has with um, Republic that allowed them to even look at us because they don't look at crap brands like us. They, uh, you know, they they go for tried and true brands, but they looked at us and they said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take a chance on you. And we have like like you had mentioned, we we're we're training brand ambassadors all over the state. And our goal is to get sips to lips to folks so that they can taste our product and then and then buy a bottle and hopefully tell their friends about it. Um, so that's our strategy. Our, our And, you know, my background as a nurse, I'm, I'm very used to teaching. I'm very used to educating. And so we've set up a, a plan and a process to bring on brand ambassadors. And so their goal is to do tastings in, in every market. So, you know, Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, 
even in Western Kentucky and in, in Paducah and um, Owensboro and Bowling Green, we're trying to hit those major markets and do tastings and, and bring awareness. Um, and, and I don't think you, you see a whole lot of brands uh, like us that are this small that focuses on that piece of it, you know, that focuses on bringing people in to train them. And I mean, I do, I do the history uh, of RD1. I do the bourbon steward program because I think it's important that everybody have a foundational knowledge of bourbon and whiskey so that um, when they talk to a, a customer that comes in to do a tasting, that they have that foundational knowledge and, um, and they can talk um, about intelligently about what is bourbon, what is whiskey, what's the difference between them. And I love that. I love that opportunity that we've got. And we're, so we're setting up a training program that these brand ambassadors once a month are going to jump on a call and they're going to listen to other brand ambassadors, uh, you know, what's going well, what, what are some of the roadblocks that maybe they're hitting and then, and training. And so we'll continue to reinforce the training of, of bourbon steward and, and our new products that are coming out tomorrow. Market. So that's probably something that's a little bit unique to us. Um, we're very focused on um, making sure that um, people understand the product itself and are able to intelligently talk about it. That's so important. It's it's important for the brand. It's important uh, for people who are who work at at bars and at retail establishments as well to to learn about it. So that you know, have the brand ambassador talk to them and you know have that second level of training. And, yeah. uh, you know, not everyone does it. Uh, that does bring me to another question, though. And uh, I'm going to pour sip number two. Yes. Is, uh, the, the 114 proof, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so same uh, mash bill, blend of mash bills yep. as number one. Yeah. But a 114 yep. proof. Uh, this yep. is the uh, the proof that's readily available on shelves. So. When um, when you were thinking about reviving this particular brand, so you know the it makes perfect sense to go to RD one. It's the from the historical aspect of it. Um, you can see I'm holding a pen because I'm writing notes as we go along. Uh, from the historical aspect, it makes perfect sense. So when but when you were reviving it, of course, in 1865, bourbon as as we think about it was not legally defined. Um, right. With you know whiskey wasn't even legally defined in the same way that we have now. So in uh, in reviving the brand, was there any thought to going, you know, straight bourbon versus versus the blend that you ended up with? What was that thought process like during the revival? Yeah, the, the most important thing is that and, and you know, the, the us bourbon aficionados, we want to see, are you staying true to the brand? Are, are you bringing back a specific yeast strain and, and a mash bill? And, and, and we absolutely want to do that. But most importantly, when we're reviving this brand, we want to make sure and, and we did to make sure that we were bringing a product to market that was very good. And um, and so not just getting anything from a barrel and putting it in a bottle and saying this is RD1, this is William Tarr brand. We wanted to make sure that it was a high quality product that customers are going to taste and hopefully like and then tell their friends about it and so that was our intention uh, with the uh, with the whiskey with the blend whisk blended whiskey and what you see going on now in in America is you, you're seeing a lot more blending occurring similar to you know scotch that's been around for 
hundreds and hundreds of years, um, you, you see a lot of finishing, you know, so giving a nod to Lincoln Henderson with Angel's Envy, they were the first ones, you know, they, they had a very disruptive brand with that bottle. They, uh, they also um, did, they were the first one to get through TTV, Kentucky Straight Bourbon, finished in port wine barrels. And so finishing has, you know, been the the hottest craze right now. I mean, people are looking for a toasted oak. They're, they're looking for, you know, Nulu has uh, great products out of Louisville that that they do a lot of finishing. So I think that um, the, the product just has to be really good. And so what we came out with was a Kentucky straight bourbon. It was a 12-year, super limited release. And, and is actually the 12-year is what convinced Mark Stoops to, to buy into the company. He loved the story, but it wasn't until he tasted that 12-year product that he was like, I, I'm all in. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I want to buy the company and I want to be a part of this uh, Revive brand. That is delicious. Getting a lot of, kind of t- a toasted almond. I think it's almond. Definitely yeah. a toasted nut. Yeah. I think almond. Um, more pronounced cherry notes, dry, mm-hmm. as well as some fresher ones like a Bing cherry right off the tree. The proof is not overpowering by any means. It just settles uh, like really under the tongue and on the sides, mm-hmm. down the salivary mm-hmm. glands there. It's, yeah, it, it, to it, me, it doesn't right. taste like 114. It, it, and, and in fact, uh, on the palate, uh, I think the 96.4 with that rye being open is is hotter with that white pepper. This one is um, the, the corn dominates the flavor profile. And um, like you had mentioned, I get I get that that oak from the barrel. I get some char from that barrel. Um, I get a little macadamia nut. So I definitely get an earthy note of, of, of nut. Um, um, and um, I, I, I absolutely get a lot of the, um, the uh, it's a very thick viscous mouthfeel because it's non-chill filtered and it, it, it definitely hangs around that finish hangs around a, a little bit oh, yeah. uh, for you. Um, I, you know, I, I lovingly call this a Kimberly finish because I, I get the vanilla, the caramel notes and, and that char really work well together in the glass. Oh, Oh, Barry, how do you know creme brulee was my favorite dessert? <laughs> it, I think it's a lot of our favorite. It is absolutely my favorite. It is, but you're you right. Know, about, and and I, if you just, oh no, you're right about the finish too. It's it's just it's sitting on my tongue and just, yeah. just laying there, and I'm I'm okay with it. I'm good with it. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a uh, a sipping whiskey. You know, this one, I don't know if you're a cigar smoker, this one absolutely holds up to a very robust cigar. And um, uh, th- this one has won a double platinum medal, a single platinum and four gold medals. Um, it, we we hit the nail on the head with this proof. This 114 really is the right proof um, for those of us who like high proof. Now, not everyone's like us. I think we're probably in a 1% category. And so that's why we came quickly back and, and had a lower proof with the 96.4, because you just don't want to mix this. You know, you don't want to make a cocktail out of 114 proof. That's this good. Um, for me, it, it just mutes it. Now I will tell you, my wife likes a blackberry bramble, and she will only put the 114 in it because she thinks that that 114 really um, marries well with the the blackberry that's that's in that cocktail. I can definitely see that, Scott. Like I said, I was getting more more fresh cherry on there, so I can see a fresher, yeah. just berry note and a little bit of acidity there. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
I so so the one fourteen really came out before. Did it come out before the ninety six point four? It did. Yeah. It did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm good with I'm good with the higher proof cocktail too, because um, obviously I have not tried this in a cocktail um, yet, but um, I'm a I'm a big fan of like a Booker's Old Fashioned, because oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, especially like one or two of those batches that you know I don't really like that much, but um, it makes a great old fashioned though because it's got the power to uh, hold up to some of that sweetness, and especially if yeah. you're a proof if you're a proof person, even in the cocktails you want a little burn in there. <laughs> You you want a higher proof in your cocktail? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now this was uh, was delicious, but it's delicious at the one fourteen. But again, I mean, going back to the ninety six point four, even going back to it after the one fourteen, it doesn't lose anything. It doesn't taste water. Yeah, I, mm-hmm, right, right. That, that's usually the kiss yeah. of death for me is when it starts tasting watery. Yeah, when it when it starts to break, it it a little bit of my heart breaks. You know, one, mm-hmm. once you get to that point where you're starting to pick up some of the faults, and I think we're well above that. I think that you know you're probably going to have to go down to low 90s to to really start getting it um, thin and um, and seeing some of the faults. But I think we're pretty safe with uh, with that 96.4 proof level. No, it's it's right on. Um, I I usually say if it's under 95 to 100, I don't taste the proof. This one I had a little bit on there and it's just enough. But again, mouthfeel, very solid. I'll be honest, if I had to choose, I'm going to go the 114 because that's just me. Yeah. But I think people who are, who prefer a little bit lower proof, but something that's also not just going to slide down that you're going to know and have to sip a little bit, will enjoy mm-hmm. the 96.4 as well. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to pull something out of a hat here before we go on to the next pour. <clears throat> and it, you mentioned it a little bit, which is a lot of people like to go back and see, you know, can we find the yeast strain that was involved? Can we find, can we analyze the blend if we find a, an old whiskey? And uh, I think the podcast that I was listening to, I think it was the episode of the bourbon show you did. This was back in 2020 um, when the brand was, was launching. And um, you had mentioned you were trying to, you know, maybe going over to firm solutions or, or sending stuff over there to try to figure out mash bills and yeast strains. Uh, mm-hmm. Were you successful? Yeah. So great story there. Um, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Heist, uh, Dr. Pat, he's, uh, you know, just a, a brilliant mind with firm solutions and, you know, they, uh, and, and I know, you know, this, but they've got 30 proprietary yeast strains in, in their, in, in in their armamentarium. And, um, and so what he told me is that, um, you know, you really can't do an electronic analysis to, to figure out the mash bill, to figure out the yeast strain. He said, you need to get some really good people that have great palates and noses and, and do an expert tasting panel. And then he said, we can come up with a yeast strain that's going to mimic that. Um, but the, the key is really identifying what, what percentage of corn, what percentage of, um, of flavoring grain is in there and, um, and then match that up with a yeast strain. And, and he, he can actually do dishes, petri dishes that have that yeast strain that will help us identify on the nose what that um, flavor profile is. And so I can tell you in, in 2020, I actually had a pint bottle that's still sealed pre-prohibition. So it was it was barreled in 1917 and it was bottled in 1934. 
And, um, you know, it, really cool bottle. It has the medicinal uh, um, uh, medicinal purposes uh, on the uh, label. And, um, and so I still have that one in my, um, in my collection, but, um, I just, uh, about, um, three or four months ago, um, have you heard of revival in Northern Kentucky? It's, um, it's in Covington. And so Brad Bonds, um, owns, uh, that, uh, it's a vintage bourbon shop and, and they actually have other vintage spirits too. He came upon a liter bottle of old tar, that was bottled and on the label it's it has a lexington kentucky um label and so what that tells me is that um in 1908 the brand moved itself from lexington up to whiskey row when the whiskey trust bought it back from the stolen company and so that bottle that leader bottle is from the 1900 early 1900s when um stolen company owned the brand and um, and so that one is still sealed, and uh, we're we're actually buying that one and bringing that into the um, in, into our museum that we're going to display at our brand destination. Now, I do believe that w- we will probably open one of these bottles and and do exactly that, which is try to recreate that um, that mash bill. And you know, during during the um, during the 1900s, the brand did have a um, a bourbon mash bill and, and, and a whiskey mash bill. And so this one, um, we're just going to have to determine based on our expert tasting panel, which, uh, which mash bill we believe it is, because it does, it, do, it doesn't have the back label. It just has the front label. And, um, we're, we're going to have to figure out, you know, which one that is, but, but super excited. Um, we are going to do that. We are going to, um, bring about a, a, a very special mash bill. And so what you're going to see with our brand, um, we're going into a trend transition um, right now you can see that we have the uh, the, the William Tar um, on our label and um, uh, within the next um, four to eight weeks you're going to start seeing RD1 displayed on the same bottle and uh, it's still going to be our tribute brand to William Tar. It'll have tr- William Tar on the label. But as we move into next year, we're going to have a custom bottle and we're going to have different releases. So we will have a uh, probably a four grain release. We'll, we'll probably have a, um, a bourbon, a Kentucky straight bourbon. Um, I know some of the uh, leadership team really wants to bring a, a weeded mash bill because, you know, there's a lot of fans out there that really enjoy that uh, I don't want to say narrow on the flavor will but you know uh, the, the weeded fans really enjoy that for that 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 sweet that that nutty flavor and um, and and so I think that we probably will bring a, a, a weeded mash bill as well and um, so at this point I can see us coming out with about four different labels um, starting next year that's, that's incredible it- to find let's see so the so the bottle the leader bottle it was old tar yeah and then the uh pint bottle the medicinal bottle that you had was that um also old tar it was yeah it, it, it's an old tar and um and then one other bottle that i did um curate was a, a bourbon deluxe so back in back in the um you know before prohibition and, and even during Prohibition, Bourbon Deluxe was a part of the RD1. It, it does have a William Tarr distillery um, on the label. 
And so, um, so that bourbon deluxe is also a, I'm sure it's a different mash bill. Uh, but, um, but I did curate that just because it had the William Tart distillery on it from Louisville, Kentucky. Sure. I mean, I've, uh, I've had a couple of, I think I've had two or three different, um, bourbon deluxe releases, but they would have been later. They would have been maybe, you know, the sixties national distillers yeah. era yeah. or, right. um, and uh, I mean, they were they were fantastic whiskeys. Uh, of course, not necessarily the same thing that would have been produced originally, but uh, still, it, it. I think the youngest one was four years old. Maybe the latest, the latest one was eight or so. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, those are again delicious. I'm. Yeah. They they did something magical back in you know if you if you try some of those old dusties you know from the fifties and sixties there's something magical about what they were doing with distilling and mm-hmm. um, there there's you know for being like a four five seven eight year um, age stated bourbon or whiskey they were so rich and and developed in flavor in comparison to present day. Um, I, you know, I, I think yeah, you and I probably have uh, sampled quite a bit of older whiskey and I, I specifically go to those vintage shops just because they'll, they'll highlight them on their bar. And, and you know, even if I pay 50 bucks for a pour, you just can't get that. You can't get that kind of an age product. Um, unless you go into a specialty shop and it's Kentucky, Kentucky's the only state that I'm aware of that, that you're able to, to, to go into a shop, get a pour and then buy a bottle of, of vintage spirit. Now I could be wrong. I think maybe Washington DC may have the same ability to get some of those vintage spirits, but, um, we have three here in the state of Kentucky that if I'm in Lexington, Louisville or Northern Kentucky, I'm going to go to one of those at some point and sit down and have a pour with them. No, I'm totally with you. And yeah, I mean, DC, who knows? They, uh, DC seems to have almost no laws on liquor, which is on one hand great. And on the, it's great for shipping, but I, I don't know what's going on there. Um, but, uh, but no, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. That era, I mean, my, my favorite from that era are just anything old crow. That era. Yes. I, yes. I, I brought it when I came down to uh, Kentucky over more of the weekend. I brought a traveler unopened. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. in in perfect condition we finished it. it still had the uh the price label on it four dollars 35 cents for that um and uh and i have my first stop when i was down there happened to be i think it was bardstown bourbon company and um they have mm-hmm. they have their own kind of vault list and i think yes. it was like 120 a pour or something for that and i was like Ooh, inflation's gone up um <laughs> But uh, but no, the the old crow and especially the chessmen are just yeah. my my favorite yeah. pours from that era. Um, I I like other things as well, but national distillers of that era just always always pulls at my heartstrings. Yeah, and they were and doing something buds. special, yeah. for sure. Uh, and you know, speaking of something special that you guys are doing, as you said, number three in the pours is a little something extra. Yeah. Yeah, so I had our supply chain guy. I said, "Hey, I need I need a bottle pulled straight from our our tank that that's holding you know the remainder of our our blend." And um, it it, um, it it was coming in at 118 proof, but you know when you hold things in a in a tanker, they're going to always start to lose proof. And so this one's probably around 116 proof now. 
Um, I do have a bottle that I um, have sealed that is at that 118 proof, and I'll pull that one out uh, for a special occasion. Maybe when you're around, I'm, I might pull it out and sample it with you. It would be my honor. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. It's just a couple of proof points, which people think, yeah. you know, 114, 116, 118, it's not going to make a big difference, but it does. Mm. Mm. so much more flavor i mean it it mm. oh yeah it feels like that sugar coating you get in your mouth mm -hmm. after you eat a um either a chocolate chip or a sugar cookie and it's just yes. begging you to drink some more water afterwards and mm -hmm. coating on there that is so good yeah. And that's that, um, you know, that's, that's that really, that it's that, that viscous coating, you know, it, it's, it's going to stay there and hang around. And I love the description of a, um, you know, a chocolate chip cookie, because it's exactly what I get on the tongue is, is I'm just getting that residual and it, it's just mm -hmm. hanging around there. That, that sweet, um, uh, profile. It's very good. A little bit of that, a little bit of that tip of the tongue, pepper side of the mouth, Oak dryness but it's it's not woodiness at all and i i'm i'm not a fan of super aged whiskeys by any means like my sweet spot is really going up to about 12 13 years at most yeah. um and yeah this just the oak is it's peppery it's creamy it adds to a, uh it it creates a great mouthfeel especially on the chew mm. but at no point is yeah. it woody yeah, I get, I get like, like, you know, like you said, um, I, I like to refer to it more as barrel char um, because it definitely has a, um, you know, a, a wood component, but it, there's more flavor to it than just a stringent drying of the mouth. It, it's, it's not that at all. Yeah, you're not chewing on the wood. You're, it's mm -hmm. being drunk mm -hmm. nicely out of it. So I'm, I'm lobbying now for my partners. And our, our, we have a national sales manager. He's our chief sales officer. And, you know, really we, we focus and, and rely on him to manage our, um, our, our consumer piece uh, to our, our brand. And I'm like, we, we have to bottle, even if it's gift shop only, let's bottle this at, at cask proof. Oh. You know, I don't know what we'll call it, but, but, you know, there, there may be the opportunity to have, um, the, to get a bottle of this through the gift shop. I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, to send you a private message, uh, if we do that, cause I'm, I'm sure you're appreciating this like I am. I, this is, this is the best kind of bottle because it makes me have two feelings at once. The first one is that I want one, which of course as the producer, that's exactly what you want people to, to have as a first one. And my second one is I want other people to try it. Yeah. And yeah. that's the best thing that I can do. That's the best thing. Anything anyone can do for a brand is to share with a friend and say, you should try this because it's damn good. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that really was our intention was create something that people love and they want to tell their friends about it. And so I think we have achieved that. I think the 114 is there, but I think this one, this one's so special, you know, this one's going to be a very limited release. And, um, you know, we've got, we're, we're balancing and juggling a lot of balls right now because we're in, we're in transition. We're getting ready to go into uh, what the market calls O and D and you, you may know what that means, October, November, December. And we make 
you know, the majority of our profit uh, during these months. So we uh, we can't introduce anything after it, getting into September um, is is getting a little tough for us to introduce new products. And so I'm uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to introduce this um, for October, November, December. And if not, then this will probably be one that will go into our new custom bottle and um, have it be just a, um, a gift shop only release. But uh, at any rate, I'm going to make sure at some point that we at least get you know, a couple hundred bottles uh, that that's a gift shop only. Absolutely. I, I can't wait. Um, <clears throat> yeah. That, that date of September 2nd. Well, now that, when this goes live, it will have passed, but that date of September 2nd is coming up and that's uh, the start of the hunt. At the end of the year. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even really hunt anymore, to be honest. Like I, I try, I I'll, and mm-hmm. I know that through, through friends and through bars, I'll get to try like the, the BTAC. I don't generally try the Pappy line. It's not my thing. Um, I enjoy weeded bourbons. Mm-hmm. Just, I, there are other people who are going to appreciate it more. Like with the BTAX, yeah. Again, profound. I go for the stag, the yeah. weller, and the uh, handy, the eagle rare, and the Saz, I don't enjoy because it's it's over oaked and too mm-hmm. much water for me. So I'm like, I'll let other people yeah. have that. But yeah. you know, I'll let other people hunt, try from their largesse, and then other than that, stick with just trying new things. I've got, you know, you were very generous with samples. People are being very generous with samples when they come onto the podcast, and uh that is more than sustaining me for anything that I would ever need to hunt for. So I am good. I am good well, not hunting, but my, my collection is so vast. Um, you see behind me, this, this is in my kitchen and I've got a, a floor to ceiling bar and I, I, I can't even put all my bottles on, on this bar display. I've got over 500 bottles and, you know, obviously I have a, a whole lot of, of, of William Tarr, but um, but but I, I'm, I'm more of a barrel pick guy. I, you know, I mm-hmm. prefer to, you know, I know um, Chris with um, Kroger, um, he's he's their buyer. He's their barrel pick. So I know if he's picking out a barrel and it's a, um, a four roses um, barrel proof, I'm, I'm going I'm getting that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I, I love like Justin's House of Bourbon here in Lexington and Louisville. They have really good palates. They know what they're doing when they're when they're picking, you know. So I uh, I typically will go uh, with a store that um, knows what they're doing. Their 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 flavor profiles are very similar to mine. And um, you know, the other thing is I'm I'm a member right now of about nine different bourbon clubs in the state of Kentucky. And and mm-hmm. bourbon clubs, we buy barrels. You know, we buy barrels, and and so I'm fortunate to be able to go and do these barrel picks. And, um, uh, you know, if I find a barrel that I'm doing a pick on with the club and, and they don't pick the barrel, I like, I'll ask, I'll ask the supplier, Hey, can, can, can I buy another barrel? And, and I've, I've been fortunate to be able to get, uh, you know, a barrel or two, um, in my, uh, barrel picks, uh, because there's no shortage of people that are going to buy a bottle of, uh, you know, a pick that you choose. So, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're lucky in, in Kentucky to, to be able to do that. You know, I think we kind of overlook it and, you know, it's kind of commonplace, but you know, less than 1% of the population have done a barrel, a barrel pick. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my dream for this podcast and for, you know, Patreon supporters and the whiskey ringers group is to get to a point where we can do barrel picks. Cause I, I, 
I agree with you that some of the best whiskey out there is is in the picks. It's in those single barrels that are just gold. Um, and um, I'm also glad to hear that your number was higher than mine because uh, that would have just been really embarrassing for for both of us, I think. Um, but as I like to say, you guys, you have more room down there in Kentucky. I'm I'm in New York City. I don't have any, I have enough bottles, let's say, and not enough room for them. Uh, yeah and just logistically getting it from here to there oh god oh god it's i can't move i can't move yeah um and you also bring up something that i i've mentioned before in the podcast and and on um the patreon only under the influencer where finding those people with whom your palate aligns is so important mm-hmm. for the for picks like that like i've got my guys up here who yeah. the exact same thing i know if they pick a bottle and if it's a brand that i like I'm going to like that. And even if it's one I don't like, I'll, I'll still try it because maybe they got something that's yeah. so off profile that I really like it. Who knows? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. Um, what's been your, uh, if you can say it, what's been your favorite pick that uh, a group declined, but you decided to get a barrel anyway? <laughs> um, it was, it was an Elijah Craig barrel proof um, pick. And it was um, it was with the uh, the Bourbon Capital Guild out of Bardstown, Kentucky. And we're a new club. We're uh, we've only been around for right at a year. And um, if you can imagine being in a, a bourbon club that is in Bardstown, we've got Steve Nally. We, we've got all of, you know, master distillers. They, they get they get a membership to the bourbon club and you know, kind of selfish on our part because we're, uh, we're wanting them to come in. We've done barrel picks with Jim beam, with Barstown bourbon company, with Lex row, with heaven Hill, you know, so, you know, all the big distilleries there um, we've done barrel picks with. And so, you know, it's kind of selfish that, um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm loving it because I'm a fan, you know, I'm a bourbon fan. Um, even though I've got a brand and, and this is what I love about the bourbon industry is we're all friendly. When we get together, we're bringing our special bottles. You know, it, it's not uncommon for um, Stephen Beam uh, and Steve um, um, Stephen Fonte to come together. You know, we'll, we'll have breakfast together. We'll smoke a cigar on their patio and and drink some of their their very best barrel picks. But that's really what I love about this industry is that you know you never see a contest where we're pitting um, our our distillate against someone else's. You, you might see um, cocktail competitions, but it's not the the brand that that's doing that. It's it's either the clubs or a restaurant that, that are doing that. And I love that. You know, we're very supportive of each other. The Kentucky Distillers Association has done such a wonderful job in lobbying on our behalf. And, you know, we had some very favorable um, legislation uh, get passed this year in House Bill 500 that now allows us to go to fairs and festivals and festival markets and sell bottles and sell cocktails. Mm-hmm. You know, as a craft brand, how important is that to me um, is that I get to sell bottles and make revenue from a MSRP standpoint rather than putting it through distribution. It's all important, but at the end of the day, for a new brand making the most amount of money, you know, because we're uh, sure. you know, we're still building a brand. We're uh, you know we're we're getting ready to move into Indiana and Florida, but right now we're just only in Kentucky. No, I again. 100% agree. Uh, so calling back to a couple of guests now, um, David Mandel was on recently mm-hmm. um, and he mentioned House Bill 500 and that was 
I hadn't even heard of it outside of Kentucky. And then I looked into it. It's, I think most people were focused on the, um, you know, our barrel pick is going to go away issue that was right. later solved. But yeah. um, arguably, I think House Bill 500 was the more important one. Yeah. No, no one seriously believed that barrel picks were going away. It's just, it's too much of a, of a drive. It's too much of, you know, there are too many benefits to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think anyone seriously thought it was going to go away, but the ability to sell at a festival, like you, as you said, you can bring bottles to the KBF now and, yeah. you know, sell whatever you would sell in several weeks, let's say over mm-hmm. a series of days, because you've got eyes on the brand, you've got you in front there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the same way, um, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, Stephen Fonte, also a recent guest. He was, uh, he was episode 50 actually. So uh, a special guest on that one. And uh, He's, uh, you know, he's like you, he's just a, a he's still a fan. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate everyone who comes on the show. They've all got their own, uh, you know, history. And I think you're the first nurse that former nurse that's come on, but everyone's got their own history. I mean, Stephen was a tea sommelier, so uh, tomato, tomato <laughs> in this one, but everyone's got their own background, their own likes, dislikes and, and things. Um, some people can be a little jaded on certain points of the industry or or be uh, on the other side just so hyper focused on on growing their brand, perhaps rightly so, that any other brand is like, no, 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 can't talk about them. It's like it's this is all I drink right now. And and um I I just wanted to point that out because I appreciate when someone who like you could come on, you could have come on here and said, like, we're just gonna talk Lean Tar, we're just gonna talk RD1. Um but in talking about the groups that you're involved in, the palettes that align with yours, the things that you drink when you're not drinking your own product, I think gives a better representation and a better profile on you and on the brand than just talking about the brand would do. So yeah. I just want to I appreciate that. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's authentic. You know, I, I mean, uh, I, I, you, you could just put up a, like you said, you could just throw up there and say, you know, look, I'm just going to only talk about my brand, but I, I'm a fan, you know, and, and mm-hmm. being a fan um, really changes the game, you know, because it, it allows me to interact in a, in a very open and authentic way um, to other brands and, um, and, and be a fanboy. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. the first time that I went to a, a bourbon society event, uh, here's Jimmy Russell that that's there signing bottles, you know, so I had Jimmy sign a, 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 a wild Turkey one-on-one bottle. And he's like, 101. He's like, interesting. You brought that one. He said, now you're going to drink this, right? You know, and, 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 and he will not sign a bottle unless you tell him, yes, Jimmy, I'm going to, I'm going to drink that bottle. And I did drink it and I have it chromed. So now it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an art, a piece of artwork that has Jimmy Russell, a legend in the bourbon world um, on my mantle. And that that's, that's awesome. I missed Jimmy by one day while I was there. Apparently, um, he stopped. He likes to stop in on the sad on the Sundays. I was there on I think Friday. Um, oh, so I, he likes to go in there after church because I mean that makes complete sense for for it someone. Makes like perfect Jerry. sense. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> um, but you know, just just to to finish off that that kind of idea, you know, there's I'm just looking at at behind you, and you know, this is an audio only podcast, so we got to describe things. But just behind you mm-hmm. on your on your home bar, your kitchen bar, which looks like a bar bar because it's beautiful. It's got the pipes and all the, I mean, off your right shoulder, you've got the makers picks, you've got four roses, you've got pin hook. Uh, think, mm-hmm. 
um, a Penelope or two, Wilderness Trail. Um, of course, mm-hmm. plenty of William Tarr, as should be. Yeah. But also, yeah. you know, Booker's, the Heaven Hill White Label, uh, mm-hmm. Knob Creek's, Buffalo Trace picks, Weller's, you know. So uh, even a couple of Blanton's up there. So you really are, and Michter's, of course, behind you as well. So mm-hmm. this really is, yeah. you know, you drink the field and you try the field. Yes. And yeah. to me, someone who yeah, does it, that and uh, talks about it, yeah. Market research. Exactly. Good way to put it. Market research. I wish I could write that off like the businesses could, but uh, I think I got to get an LLC for that. <laughs> All right. Uh, shall we go into number four? Yes. Okay. So number four, this is a uh, Kentucky straight bourbon. Um, it is, uh, the mash bill is 70% corn, 21% rye and 9% malted barley. This is at barrel proof. It's 126 proof. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallaki, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more. There's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is. No diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskey Ring Podcast as our newest sponsor. And please visit smwsa.com 
with code WRP for 20% off your annual membership. That's interesting. There's like a unsalted pretzel crust on there. Toasty. Of course, I mean, a different bash bill than, um, than the first three. So can't expect yeah. it to be totally the same, but. Right. No proof on the nose. It doesn't. Yeah, it definitely, it does not um, nose like a 126 proof. Mm-mm. I do get a lot of the um, the bold, spicy notes on the nose. Um, I get a little uh, a, a little campfire um, mm. toast. Like you were saying before, the barrel char that that kind of charriness, as opposed to an overt smokiness or something like that. But mm-hmm. mm. doesn't drink like a one twenty six either. It doesn't. I mean, you can you can see, um, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, this audio only, but um, you can you can see the the very thick legs, you know, which is um, non chill filtered. It's straight from the barrel, and it is it is absolutely, um, you know, very thick and viscous and coating. Um, you know, I do get. I, I am getting some of the, um, uh, you know, I, I would call it. Uh, maybe a, a little bit of sweetness and maybe a, a toasted marshmallow um, for me on the, um, on the palate. Yep. And definitely see that. And again, it's, it lingers the long finish. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm, That's good. I'm going back for more. You know how many aromas the nose can pick up on? It's- Part of uh, being a nurse, I, I, I throw in a, a few of the uh, um, anatomy and physiology. No, it's fine. I, I just have to ask because that, that depends. Are we talking on a real level or on a Woodford Reserve like pallet wheel? <laughs> Sorry, couldn't, yeah. couldn't resist. Uh, on a, yeah, on, on a <laughs> on a real level. So so it, and what it does is is this demonstrates how important your nose is in in sampling and tasting. You know, the the mouth can pick up on. Sweet, sour, spicy, bitter, or umami. It can perceive hot and cold and chemical. You know, so we're putting a chemical in our mouth here. So seven distinct different things is what the mouth can pick up on. But the nose can pick up on a trillion different aromas. And so the importance of the nose, the importance of, you know, how Booker tells, you know, do the Kentucky chew because that Kentucky chew is creating aromas that are going up into your nose. And, and so it's super important that you, you know, think of the mouth as the laboratory and, and the nose as the chimney. So as you're creating those aromas, you're wanting to get that retronasal appreciation of those um, ethanol alcohol aromas so that you can pick up on, um, on, on those different flavors. And, you know, we, we all experience flavor differently because flavors are, are created from our memory. You know, so my memory of eating an orange is going to be different than yours. You know, mm-hmm. if I ask you, can you, um, what does a grape taste like? You know, you, you'll tell me, well, it, there's a textural component there. You know, it it's, can be kind of crunchy, but it may be sweet. It may be sour, depending on the type of grape you're having. But you can't mm-hmm. describe, you can't put into words what that tastes like. 
Um, uh, and so we need our memories. We need those memories to be able to describe flavors. And that's why, you know, you mentioned the flavor wheel. The flavor wheel is so nice to be able to look at as you're, you know, doing sampling to kind of help you express what you're tasting. But we all taste things differently. You know, that's the beauty of, of mm -hmm. doing samples. Nobody can tell you what it tastes like. Now, you know, you said earlier, the power of suggestion is going to make you, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I get orange citrus. I get that dried cherry on on the um, on the finish it were the you know, power suggestion is really um big but um but if you're doing blind tastings that's the best way to educate your palate oh yeah and another fun exercise is to especially if you're using a you know tulip shaped glass either a glen or something like that mm -hmm. to try to do the first sip with um i mean you you know this i'm, I'm not talking to you on this one it's more for, for the audience trying at home but um you know sip it at first with uh pinching your nostrils closed so mm. basically you can't smell it it's just through your mouth you'll get some flavor in there and then do another sip with your nose wide open mm. and you know just see what happens let's put it that way see what happens um but yeah physiologically the nose and your sense of smell um when you look again speaking of the choir but if you look at a you know, diagram of the brain, the olfactory bulb goes um, farther, deeper into the brainstem, closer to the primal areas of the brain. It's the, it's the strongest sense that we have. It's of the five major ones. It's the most primal. It's the most important one. Being able to smell if something is good or bad before you taste it or ingest it in any way um, is how a lot of us survive <laughs> um, on a daily basis um, and survive through evolution. So it really is... Uh, you know, and the nose is, I think, uh, unequivocally is, is almost more important in tasting than the mouth is. Yeah. You get more out of the nose. Than the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. This is a dangerous one because this sips at, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know I'm a proof fan, so my, my numbers are a little off on this one, but I would have, I would put this more towards like a, even maybe 110. 105 isn't yeah, that funny yeah it just goes down so easy mm. yeah very little burn um again a lot of oh yeah the toasted notes start coming out stronger and stronger as it goes along as you sip a little more mm -hmm. viscous mm. so uh of course it's being a different mash build than the first three what's um what led you to using a different bourbon mash bill in, in this product as opposed to the bourbon mash bill that you had as part of the first three? Well, I think if you look at, just look at where bourbon has gone really just over the last two and a half years, you know, so let's, let's kind of look at, at COVID and, and look at where, what we were able to get in, uh, in, in early 2000, maybe 2019, there were age barrels on the market, you know, so as we're looking out and, and trying to get enough product to be able to release, we were able to get eight year and, and seven year product and, and, and put together a blend that had a wonderful flavor profile that we were proud enough to release. Um, we have now, we have more barrels in inventory than we ever have had in the state of Kentucky. There's almost um, just a little under, or right at 12 million barrels in, in storage. But those barrels are young. 
You know, we've been consuming so much, you know, over the last two, two and a half years that there's no age stock anywhere. You know, people are buying up that the age stock. And, and so as we're looking, we had to develop a, um, a liquid strategy because we do plan. We're not we're not looking to exit. You know, we're not looking to have some big brand come in and acquire us and and, and sell out. We're having a lot of fun doing this and and we're actually we're building the brand to 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 continue to grow it and and so what we were looking for is what could we find in a mash bill that um that was a, a good flavor it was a kentucky product you know we're not looking to you know 95 percent of all the craft brands are are, are sourcing from Ross and Squibb it now used to be MGP but they changed their name um they're there, you know, we don't want to. We if we're reviving Lexington, Kentucky's first federal registered distillery, it almost seems inauthentic to not get a Kentucky mash bill. And so we we found enough barrels to be able to to source some age product. You know, so we're aging product now into five, six, seven years, but we're also contract distilling that same mash bill. So we're laying down new make of that same mash bill. We're actually building a production distillery in Ohio County in Western Kentucky. Um, it'll be done by the, um, by, by mid year next year. And it will have uh, 49,000 barrel capacity per year, you know, so we're, we're looking to, you know, to backfill um, what we're, where we're contract distilling now um, with the um, with our production distillery that's um, currently under construction. I mean that's <clears throat> forty nine thousand barrels. That's it. Sounds like such a huge number. I know. I know. Compared to like some of the heritage brands, that's the drop in the bucket for them. But at the same time, that's it's no small potatoes either. Yeah, yeah. that's. Yeah, for for a small brand like us, uh, that's that's huge. You know, it's it's a it's a big number. But like you said, we're we're nowhere near the the Heaven Hill and the and the Jim Beam. And you know, I think that we're um, we're really happy with where we are. We can be in charge of making our own mash bill, and 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 then you know, as we're as we're trying to figure out the um, the resurrected mash bill with um, the old tar that we've got in our inventory we'll be able to start laying that down, you know, and that's going to be uh, at least, at least a minimum four years. You know, we're, we're, we're not going to come out with a product that's, that's young. We're not going to come out just to try to make money um, a product that isn't ready, you know, so it'll be ready when the, the barrel says it's ready, not when our accountant and our, our chief financial officer says it's going to be ready. Um, we, we have to put out a great product that um, you know the customers are going to say, "Yep, this is good." You definitely want to buy one yourself, you know. So that that really, you know, that quality piece is is very important. It's important to everybody, you know, because there's nothing worse uh, uh, to a brand than to release a, a young product that um, you know may need another year, two, three in in the barrel and and releasing it early. Yeah, it's it's hard to overcome that initial reputation, and of course it. it Looking at it from the business side, it's understandable because a lot of places, especially if they decide not to do a vodka or a gin or something like that, or mm -hmm. secure other financial backing, they need some kind of money to just keep the lights on while the stuff ages. Some are yeah. able to, and some 
are kind of forced to put out that younger product. Um, and I'm giving the benefit of the doubt I'm, and saying that those people are not intentionally putting out too young product. That's, yeah. you know, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt there, but um, you're obviously not in that position. You can wait the four years, you can wait for the production mm -hmm. facility to go. And, you know, this liquid strategy, including what you mentioned earlier, being nationwide in five years, within five years, is, I think it's a testament to the fact that you guys aren't going anywhere. You've, you've got the plan, you've got, it yeah. doesn't sound like a lot of ifs are there. It sounds like a when kind of structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things, one of the big driving forces um, when I had met with and, and founded the company with um, our, our current um, partners is that we really wanted to help drive this $9 billion a year tourism industry to Lexington. You know, I mean, a lot, there's a lot of love given to Bardstown, a lot of love given to Louisville and Frankfurt and Northern Kentucky. And Lexington's just kind of like an afterthought. You know, Lexington's kind of like, we're going to fly into Lexington. We might visit James Pepper, which is a great resurrected vintage brand. Um, we might visit Town Branch or Bluegrass Distillers, but that's kind of like an afterthought. We want to um, have consumers that are coming to the bourbon trail. We would like for you either start or finish your tour in Lexington. And, and let's try to figure out some kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a different urban bourbon trail or a different beeline that combines the best of what Lexington has to offer. We got great restaurateurs in Weta Michael. We've got some wonderful um, event venues. Rupp Arena just got renovated and, you know, now is a huge event venue location. So we really do want to help establish some kind of a, a tourism component to the bourbon trail in Lexington. And so that's really part, part of our, part of our goal is um, and our business model when it was first built before COVID was that, you know, we're going to really focus on the brand destination. We're going to focus on having people come in. I mean, typically a, um, uh, a person that is um, going on the bourbon trail spends anywhere from 400 to $1,200 while they're here. You know, so it, it, it would be really nice to have a brand destination where you're driving in a lot of that bourbon tourism. And, and we, we believe that that's going to recover. We believe that, um, you know, as we um, make plans to build a from the ground up a brand destination here in Lexington, that it's going to be a first class location that will combine some of the wonderful things that when you look at Logstill, um, and what they're doing out there. I mean, they're, they're really um, creating the napification of the bourbon trail. You know, it's an experiential component. You know, they're combining the culinary piece along with the entertainment piece. And, um, you know, so I think that's really that next step. You know, you see Barstown Bourbon Company doing that. You see Heaven Hill, you know, they're bringing in the culinary piece. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so I, I believe that's just going to elevate us all as uh, people want to continue to come to Kentucky and see what the what is what is with um, Kentucky bourbon. No, I agree. I completely agree. It's it's a it's a deserving location. I mean, the the Bardstowns, the Louisvilles, they've got their own like they've got it kind of made in the bag right now. Their mm -hmm. the stuff is there. And um, yeah, Lexington there. I mean, there's clearly attraction there because you've got other things like like the Preakness, like horse horse, you know, it's the, the center of the horse world, if you will. Certainly the U.S. Yeah. horse yeah. landscape. Um, but there is a lot more 
that it has to to give. And in addition to the uh, you know Bardstown Bourbon having their culinary, the culinary ones you just mentioned, I also want to do a plug now for Blue Door Barbecue, which was so damn good. Um, World famous. That place oh, is just crazy good. That was so good. Uh, but the the funniest thing though, because I so when I was there, I stayed in Lexington, and we kind of branched out from from there to each of the destinations, and uh, we we stayed there, and we, I guess we didn't get lost, but we forgot to do something along the way. It was like, oh, you know, we'd have to go back across town, and I said, oh, you know, well, that sounds like a lot. Like, how much would it be to go back across town? He's like, that's oh, about you know, I'd be about like seven eight minutes, and I was like, you freaking kidding me, like. <laughs> Seven eight minutes. It's a, it does. It takes that long for me to wait to a, for a bus to arrive if I'm going somewhere like across town. Look, I know I'm jaded. I know I'm from New York City. Like this is, I I've got my own standards on that. But for six minutes, I'll go back to the the Lexington location for Justin's House of Bourbon. I'll go back to Blue Door. I'll go back to you know the other liquor barn or the other Total Wine because we went to the mm-hmm. wrong one or the right one. Like, yeah. No, I I would. Um, I know when I'm going there in, in August, I'm doing, I'm staying in Louisville and, and Bardstown, but um, I'll be, no, I'll be going all over. So um, again, I will definitely be coming down to you and I'll make sure to share a meal. I popped over to where you are. So we should mention before we get to the last pour, where uh, the kind of formal gift shop is for William Tarp and RD1, yeah. uh, which is, I mean, you can, I'll let, I'll let you describe it a little more, but it's um, surrounded by, it's got the James Pepper plant. Um, wonderful ice cream shop which whose name i'm forgetting at the moment crank and boom there you go crank and boom uh with the alcoholic ice cream and damn that's so good uh <laughs> you know it's got a pizza place it's outdoor venue with with um, mm-hmm. space for musical acts but um you know there's more to it than that so i'll let you yeah. go into that yeah so it's called the lexington distillery district and it's on manchester street so if you're downtown where rough arena is and you go out manchester street it's no no more than three quarters of a mile um uh, due west and it's called so the lexington distillery district is really the campus of the old pepper distillery and so james pepper a revised um, a vintage brand coexisted with the Ashland Distillery back in the day in the 1860s and 1870s, and um, and so they revised that brand. And, and you talk about the pizza place, Goodfellas Pizza. It's a uh, Goodfellas mm-hmm. Distillery, and so they're actually in a part of the Pepper uh, where the grains uh, were were um, milled, and uh, and so you still see that big silo that's right there where the Goodfellas um, um, Pizzeria is. And they probably have the second most impressive bourbon bar in in Lexington. The first one being Bluegrass um, Tavern, which is downtown. Bluegrass Tavern has probably one of the biggest whiskey bars in this region, if not um, close to the U.S. Huge, huge whiskey and bourbon collection. But um, but, you know, so the pizzeria, Goodfellas Pizzeria is there. And then a barrel house distillery is uh, the first distillery that was in the distillery district. They've been around for, gosh, I want to say 12, 13 years now. And um, and then you've got a couple of breweries that are that are located, actually three breweries. 
And um, our gift shop is in the Pepper Rick House. So this Rick House is a five-story Pepper Rick House. It was built in the um, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, and it's on the back side of that Rick House. And so right on Manchester Street, we have our brand destination there, and you can come in. We're open seven days a week right now. Um, you can come in and, and experience a historic type tour. And true to form, I, you know, I train all of our um, brand ambassadors and our gift shop workers uh, how to be a bourbon steward. What's the foundational knowledge of uh, what it means to be a, um, a bourbon? And, um, you know, we have uh, a great opportunity. You can drink straight from the barrel. We've got uh, about 20, 30 barrels in our inventory there. So you can you can drink straight from the barrel. You can. Um, we're hoping uh, at some point here over the next several months to be able to have a bottling line. So you can you can create your perfect blend of, of um, different barrels that we've got there. We want to make unique experiences. We've already done our first and second barrel pick. One was with uh, Liquor Barn, and those releases will be coming up here in uh, late August. And then the, the first um, club that's done a barrel pick is the Lexington Bourbon Society. And that's a club that's near and dear to my heart because, you know, that's the one that I joined first and was on the board. So I gave the nod to them to be able to do that first barrel pick. And so, um, you know, we're hopeful that we'll do about 30 barrel picks uh, by the end of the year. That's incredible. Uh, that's, and I, I love that idea of the bottle your own. I love any kind yeah. of bottle your own experience. I did three while I was done the first time. Mm. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I would do them all again. All right. So I know we are running short on time, so I'm going to crack number five. Oh, also, if I'm going to put on my elitist hat for a second, um, cause I have to Goodfellas pizza, New York approved. That was incredible pizza. So, so, so for there, you to say that, that is, that is a bold statement because, you know, here we are in, you know, lonely Lexington, Kentucky, and you're comparing us to an iconic pizza, you know, the, uh, so I, I agree with you. I think that they do wonderful things over there. No, I know. I, I, I've got, I got strong preferences on pizza, like get, get, the f away with the pineapple and the ham go away but if you got a good (laughs) if you've got a good pizza and before we finally order like six pies which were gigantic by the way they're 22 inch (laughs) pies um we ordered a couple of them and they were like trust me dude you're gonna like this it's gonna be as good as new york and i was like all right all right i'm gonna i'm holding judgment Mm -hmm. that was better than easily most of the pizza around me right now and oh my goodness. It was damn good. So good fellows. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking for a sponsorship, but I'll take a gift card when I go down there. Um, it was that good. <laughs> so do you do the fold method where, you know, this huge slice, you're folding it over onto itself as you're, as you're eating. Is that, is that the technique? So, normally? No, I'm, I'm not usually a fold guy. Um, but the slice was just so damn big that I had to. <laughs> I'm used to an 18 inch pizza or maybe a 16 inch, which uh-huh. again, it doesn't, it's one of those things. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you add four inches to the diameter or something and then to the circumference, that is a big ass pizza. It's two feet it's, wide. It's <laughs> huge. Yeah. You should see, you know, carrying those boxes out. I mean, you can't, oh, yeah. you can't, you know, gracefully do it. No, you're trying to get through the doorway and shimmy your way through <laughs> and sliding. No, but it, it was, it was, it was amazing. I couldn't eat more than one, one full slice 
So, yeah, but it was, yeah. Oh, it was it so good. Totally fills you up. Yeah. Well, and, and to give a nod to them, they do some damn good barrel picks. That's just out of the, out of my mind uh, to, to even hear that. Like a pizza shop is doing barrel picks. It's, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's crazy. And yet I really want to try their barrel picks now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So what do we got with number five here? So number five, it's the same mash bill. So 70 corn, 21 rye, nine malted barley. This is a finished product. And um, it's it's a French oak finished. If you uh, compare the nose between the two, you really, I get a lot of that, um, that very sweet French oak on the nose. Definitely. It's got a little more little more pepper but also some perfume on there mm -hmm. a little bit of a little more herba herbaceousness than an american oak yeah a lot more character oh that's good isn't that delicious mm. is that at about the same proof 126. Yeah. 126. Yeah. See, I would say this drinks closer to proof. Also, mm -hmm. very, very easily. Mm. It drinks very easily, closer to proof. But wow, the flavor on that is incredible. It, um, I mean, the finish is so much more bolder, it hangs around. Um, I mean, I get, um, I, I get some of the sweetness of that French oak. Um, but, but like you said, it it highlights the rye. It it, it kind of opens up that rye um, a, a little bit more. So I'm I'm getting a lot more of that bold spiciness, mm. and and richer, you know, in color. If you if um, you compare the two, this one's definitely got a whole lot more um, uh, color in the appearance. Yeah, it's like got some dark like a manuka honey on mm. there. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. I haven't had a bad pour of these five. These mm, all not even you. a not even a simply just solid. Like these are all very good to great to excellent, I would say. And um people know I don't hold back like if something's truly terrible, I will hold it back on the podcast and not tell someone offline. But if I simply don't like something, like uh two I think two or three episodes before you uh yours will be one with um with Raj Saberwal. And um, okay. you know, big importer. So um, he sent me a couple things to try that were uh, from all over Ireland, Amrit from India, and a couple of like super peated whiskeys. And it took me a long time to get along with Pete and his brother Repeat. Um, but it took me a long time <laughs> to get to get uh, along with with uh, to get the smoke and the peatiness are in there. And I can appreciate it. But between the two peated pours that he sent me, I said, "Look, I'm being very honest. I enjoyed the first one, but the second one was much." better in my opinion it was just more balanced it was stronger mm. it it wasn't yeah. um yeah like the other one was just kind of lacking um so I'm, I'm honest in that case where if it's above a level where we can have a conversation i'll be honest but these are all you know not a bad one in the bunch um, and yeah i appreciate incredibly that it's incredibly impressive you guys are are just two plus years old two and a half years old um and you know you're sourcing the right stuff. You're going to be producing the right stuff. I mean, it's just it's really incredible. And 
and you got someone at the head here who's pounded the pavement as hard as anyone out there, which which you got to appreciate and you got to respect. Well, I, I do appreciate that. I, I have a lot of my friends that say, you know, man, I, I see you in Louisville and then you're heading over to Bardstown and, um, uh, you know, but I, we're fortunate. We have a great team. And, um, and, and so now it's, it's more about just continuing to educate um, our current team that we've got and, and coach them up and, and have them be able to represent the, the brand consistently, um, whether you're in Eastern or Western Kentucky. And, you know, we, we've got to get this team ready to be self-sustaining because we're moving on, you know, so um, Adam Mendoza, our national sales manager and I, we're going to be going to Indiana in, in the, you know, six to eight weeks. So we're going to be gone and, you know, they're going to have to uh, hold down the, uh, the backyard while we're, while we're gone. And, and we have very um, strong confidence that we've got that team in place that's going to be able to do it. That's, that's absolutely what we want to hear. So we are getting towards the top of the time and I want to have a couple minutes to talk to you offline for a second. Uh, have we missed anything that uh, we should definitely talk about? Well, we, we covered the liquid strategy, which I wanted to, we covered the production distillery, which I, I wanted to, you know, I think that if I could just give a plug for, um, our other majority owners, Mike Tetterton and, and Marsha Couch, um, they came into this brand and um, what they bring in leadership and what they bring in investment has us so secure that, um, you know, we're not looking to, to go out and get more investment. You know, what we're looking to do is to execute a, a plan and a strategy based on their leadership as, as the CEO and the CFO. And so, I, you know, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about them and, and the team that we've got assembled. I think we got a first class team and we, we have bourbon consultants that are continuing to help us uh, with our supply chain, with our liquid strategy, with our, you know, our, the, the finance piece. You know, you can't overlook most craft brands fail because they don't have enough liquid. And we've made sure that we've secured that. And so we're, we're in a very good place and, you know, just great, wonderful working with people that are as passionate as I am uh, about, uh, about bringing this product to market. And we're having a lot of fun too. It, it, it can be hard work. And, um, you know, we recognize there's times where we have to sit, take a, take a step back and, and take a break, but, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change anything uh, at this point. Awesome. I love it. Well, Barry, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for being generous with uh, with your time, with some samples here of stuff that I want to get a bottle of all of these. I mean, they're I'll have to limit myself, but I want to get a bottle of all of them. Um, but we'll talk offline about that, of course. Uh, and uh, just to close out, where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find us on um, on Facebook. We finally got our Facebook uh, name changed from William Tar Distillery to now it's all RD1 Spirits. So on Facebook, RD1 Spirits. On Instagram, we're um, RD1 Spirits. And then our website is rd1spirits.com. Um, you can find me, um, Barry Brenniger, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and um, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I love, I love uh, uh, meeting people. And so, yeah, you can find me in Lexington, Kentucky, too. And I certainly will be. All right, Barry, thanks so much. Hang on for me for a second after we finish recording. Okay. This has been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. You know where to follow us. Uh, take a look at our Patreon page for new benefits, a new Patreon-only show. I'll see you next week.